कफस उदास है यारों सबास कुछ तो कहो Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today I welcome on the SASPod Shubhani Gupta, PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology at Stanford. Her PhD project studies the practice of heritage with respect to the Shikavati Haveli in Rajasthan, India. She is interested in analyzing the relationship between ideas of expertise and forms of ownership in the space of heritage practice and preservation, and how different quote-unquote experts insert themselves as stakeholders in local community practice. Shubhangmi completed her MA in Modern Indian History from Delhi University and her MPhil from Jawaharlal Nehru University in 2018, where her dissertation focused on the first colonial legislation on the preservation of monuments in India and how it impacted preservation practices in the country. After that lengthy introduction, Shubhangmi, thank you so much for making time for me today. How are you? Thank you, Lalita. It's an absolute honor and pleasure being here, and I'm doing quite well. Thank you. Good to hear it. I'm so glad. Increasingly, people are saying it's an honor to be on the SASPOD. I love that. I'm always the one who feels more honored. People make time uh, for us. So it's a win-win. I love it. Can you start us off by introducing yourself? Uh, who is Shubangni, and why do you study what you do? Uh, sure. So, um, as you mentioned, I'm a PhD candidate. Uh, I've just started my fifth year uh, at the department. Um, and uh, the nature of anthropology that I'm engaged in is archaeological anthropology. However, I'm not a digging archaeologist, so that's always a very interesting dynamic. Um, right. I tend to use more ethnographic methods, more cultural social methods for my research. And in terms of like who I am, I'm just I came back from fieldwork. So uh, in terms of my own sense of selfhood, <laughs> it is kind of like a post fieldwork life that I'm trying to engage with, um, trying to connect with the familial and familiar touchstones um, of life, because as, as you know, uh, better than most uh, fieldwork is all encompassing. Um, it takes you in different places, uh, most of them exhilarating. And why do I study what I do? Um, so it's kind of like, uh, it, it's it's a bit of a it, it, anthropological cliche almost that you stumble onto the things that you commit to as a long-term project of study. And uh, the reasons why you end up there um, are at times things that are right in front of you. And you just decided to commit to them at one at, at, a, at a point in time. So as someone who's been a consumer of heritage for most of my life, uh, as someone who loves going around places and uh, a, really you know acknowledging or um consuming and taking pleasure in architecture and art and belonging to a country that offers a plethora of all of these things um i was always interested in these themes i i think landed up in committing to it um as a phd project um the so what what i study like like you mentioned was uh, studying these residential mansions in a rural and provincial belt of rajasthan called shikhavati 
and uh, I do not belong from Rajasthan. I had been to uh, Rajasthan, uh, Rajasthani cities like Jaipur and Jaisalmer prior to the project, but I'd never been to Shekhawati. Um, and I feel very embarrassed about that, like now being on the other side of it, because it's such an amazing place. And there's so many others. Shekhawati, is it one of these best kept secrets of India? Or is it really a place that if you're like a tourist in India, you, there's no reason to go? Or is it one of those places that's amazing and yet it's off the beaten track, quote unquote? I mean, yes and no. Depends. Like there's been enough interest, tourist interest in the space from the 80s. So in that sense, it's not like super secret. But I think one of the things I, I am trying to study through my project is that this is a non-institutionalized heritage space almost. Like I call it heritage. People write, that write about these spaces call them heritage. But these are not necessarily listed as heritage. Um, and these are homes. These are homes of people that were built by this community in the mid-1800s. Uh, early 1900s and therefore they are they aren't like a secret almost but how do you end up finding them if not you know if you're in Rajasthan and you talk to people you might end up in these spaces but not necessarily as you know you google 10 best places to go to Rajasthan this place may or may not pop up and unfortunately I was one of those people who just never made as much of an effort to learn more on Rajasthan apart from the main metropolitan cities so I ended up studying this because a close friend of mine was doing a rural fellowship, a two-year fellowship uh, offered by the Piramal Foundation. And the Piramals are also this very large business family in India. And this was one of their leadership and social, uh, social uh, initiatives. And we used to talk every day and she would talk about these Havelis and these beautiful paintings as a part of her everyday life. Her work didn't have anything to do with heritage at that point in time, but it was so pervasive in the in the space that she was in. It was al almost impossible to not pay attention to them. So anyway, yeah, so once I moved from my MPhil, which was on the first legislation, uh, colonial legislation that was passed in the country. It was almost as if like there were different worlds coming together, like the heritage and arc and arc art architecture that I was so interested in, you know, consuming and being a part of um, as, a, as a citizen and a resident of India and the work, the academic work that I was doing in this um, this space of coloniality, of networks of wealth and migration and how they translated to um, promoting and preserving uh, art and architecture in the country. So that's, that's sorry, that's a long winded answer to your question, but <laughs> it was a long winded road to get there as well. You know, there's this, um... I can't remember. That was a, I think it was a razor blade company. I liked the product so much. I bought the company. There was, I don't actually know if it's, that's a, a urban myth now, or if that's true. I'll Google that later. Don't write in people. I'll figure it out. Um, but I feel that many PhDs are like that. I like the topic so much. I decided to write a PhD about it. It was definitely like that for me and, and my, my PhD. And I think if you do it that way, if you kind of chance upon it and then you do it because you have this incredible interest in it and, love for it then you're going to have five or six or seven fantastic years uh, interspersed with of course the the hell that comes with being <laughs> in an institution and having to perform in certain ways uh, but there's a lot of loveliness around that too and um I feel that from you like you're really um I don't want to say passionate because I feel it's a very overused word but you're very enthusiastic about your project and and so you're not long-winded at all I do want to ask you about the word consuming because you've mentioned it a few times already. And but when you say you're a consumer of heritage, what do you mean by that? Um, 
yeah, I mean, that's, thank you for bringing that up. That is something that was definitely a point of reflection as I started delving deeper into this space. Mm, and it, I think, was also starting off, like when I started my field work and I, I was doing it for the first time. So you can't, everything's novel and you don't really know like what to hold on to, like what would end up becoming that, that primary space of data. Uh, observing people who were positioning themselves as consumers were also very important. One of the things that was that stood out to me when I talk about myself being a consumer was to observe other groups that position themselves as consumers as well. And tourists were one of the biggest categories. So it kind of was an interesting space. And there's there's been some work that's been done on it as well, where that outsider approach, right, when you come and visit a space, and you visit a space when you see yourself as a tourist and a consumer of tourism, and you go to these spaces and you interact with them in different ways, what are the things that you expect? And of course, that ties up in the larger conversations that we have about gentrification, about capitalism, about supply and demand. And in the heritage sector, what that translates into is these expectations, these expectations that we would have as consumers. What what do they look like? Sometimes they look like if you're checking into a heritage hotel, which would be these havelis that are converted for the hospitality sector, what are the kind of bathrooms that you expect? What is the kind of expectation on electricity and water? Um, when you go out and look at them, you look for toilets, like public toilets that you can look at. You look for ticketing. You look for a structure. And uh, in some ways, spaces that disrupt that structure makes you feel about the heritage value or that structure or the space in, in a specific way. So I think for me to break out of that was also to break. I mean, we're all consumers in the sense that we partake in what's what's in front of us. We partake in the aesthetics and the art. Um, but when you go beyond that and you uh, engage in a study of people, the people who built them, the people who live in them, the people who don't live in them anymore, but do have these ancestral claims and attachments. Uh, you may still be a consumer, but then you also become something beyond that as well. Uh, you became become as much of a participant. And yes, in, in anthropology, part participant observation is one of the go-to methods to collect data that you try and embed yourself in that landscape as organically as possible so that you can see everyday life as it unfolds, even if your object of study may be something else. So I'm looking at these buildings, but at the end of the day, I need to remove myself from this preoccupation with the Haveli and look at the communities that live in them, outside them, and even the individuals, the subjectivity of the individuals that also um, comprise of these communities because they also have very different approaches and perspectives to them. Got it. Thank you. Um, I think I want to ask you um, more now about what your what the project is. So tell us more about what you're actually doing in these Havelis and what you're looking for, whether you have a thesis or a premise that you're looking to uh, develop. Um, and then you've already alluded to the fact that you're on the archaeological wing of anthropology, but you said you're not a digging archaeologist. Is that an actual term or is that something that you made up? I'm curious about that. Um, <laughs> and then you said you're doing more ethnography. Well, that feels much more on the quote unquote other side, the non-digging archaeology, ar archaeology side of anthropology. So how does your work, are you a rebel or is there a place for you in anthropology? 
<laughs> so that's a term I made up. I, okay. I, I, as far as I know, this is not the formal terminology. <laughs> it's very clear. You either go digging or you don't go digging, right? So I'm the kind of, I mean, as an archaeologist, I would, or an archaeologist in training still, um, I am interested in materiality. I'm interested in things and what those things speak to uh, regarding the people that engage with them. Um, of course, I'm looking at these objects or these materials that were not, that are survived by the people that built them and are also being used by the successors of these people and even people who may not be directly attached to them. So in that sense, I am that kind of archeologist, um, but at the same time, so I'm interested in things above ground as opposed to just necessarily below ground as well. I don't have the technical skills for it. Let's put it as simply. <laughs> so I do what I can do. <laughs> and I try and fit myself within uh, an intellectual discipline or academia based on what I can do um, as opposed to what I can't. Um, that being said, um, there is definitely, that's the beauty of heritage. Like anybody that's studying heritage, um, you can call it like heritage studies or critical heritage studies. It's just that there is no disciplinarity that's endemic to this space. Like you can uh, choose to be in whatever discipline you, you want to engage with. You can choose any methods. It's really the vantage point that you end up taking. Um, and in my case, like I, I'm someone that's trained in history and therefore my, the tools that I had uh, at hand before I joined uh, Stanford and embarked on this project was mainly archival data. So archival training. So for me, it was a complete 180 to be like, hey, texts actually don't matter necessarily in this space. It's who you speak with, what is it that they say, and how is it that you're able to interpret and analyze that data. So um, so to basically briefly kind of encapsulate what it is that that the basis of my project really is, it's to understand that these buildings that I'm studying, they're not just um, frozen in time, right? They are spaces, of course, that had they were built for a reason and they continue to thrive in this space through various uses. But there is something more to these buildings apart from that. So if I had to use like a, a theoretical framework that's still in the making, um, I would say that I'm looking at the afterlives of these buildings. So, and necessarily concentrating on the many lives that these buildings live in this in, in a simultaneous moment or almost like a consecutive moment um, where these are residences, these are vacation houses, they are empty, they are spaces of film and media interest um, and also just spaces for, you know, that's a part of community ethos and value. Uh, they almost attach meaning to people from the Havelis that they're attached with as well. Um, and a lot of my field work and field experiences kind of uh, also involved positioning myself vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the buildings that I was attached with as either a person that was studying them or as someone who also had the opportunity to live in one. Um, so that's primarily what the object of my study is. And so are they all, uh, tell us a little bit about these Havelis. So these used to be homes, mainly, where business was conducted. These are business people that own them. Families, like, I, I'm, you know, hustle bustle kind of thing. And now they are empty. Some are hotels, some are still lived in, and some are just kind of derelict, hanging around, being very valued land, but otherwise not much, or... Or not so much? Are they all reasonably um, taken care of? 
Right. So these were built by, uh, these were primarily built by a business community called the Marwadis. And there's generally a range of when they were starting to be built and the end um, period. But we can roughly say, like, you do have some buildings surviving from the mid 1700s, but generally they were built from anywhere in from the 1820s, 30s to the mid 1900s. Some were also built after um, the Indian independence. Um, so these were built as residential spaces architecturally, but not always built to be lived in. And what that means is that when, depending upon when is it that these different families were able to accumulate wealth um, by either earning wealth in the area they were in, that would be Shekhavati, or migrating to cities that offered a lot of lot more financial opportunity offered by the British, which would be mainly Calcutta and Bombay, now Kolkata and Mumbai, uh, they would send the money back to the space to be able to build like an ancestral home. So therefore, these are not always spaces that these people were born in or the space that they migrated out of, but spaces that were built after they migrated to a place, earned money. And the reason why they also built them are multifold. They sometimes it was to have a place to go back to because in at the end, the Marwadis have a very strong sense of origin or attachment to that origin, original story. They have their main deities, their family deities attached to that space. So to have a place that they could come back to uh, and stay and conduct their rituals or a place that they felt was undeniably theirs, that they could, you know, kind of claim as their own was one of the reasons. The other was also to show like, you know, that they've made it. You go to these spaces and you earn a ton of wealth. How do you tell the people back home that you have made it? You build these grand buildings. And of course, there's a lot of academic work. All The kings in uh, all around India used to do it, right? Like one, one of the uh, easiest ways to show political power and abundance of wealth was to build architecturally and have that being a legacy of, of your family. So um, yeah, so that was the historical setup. But now... Uh, some of them are used as residences. A lot of them are where you have branches, peripheral branches, some of the less of relatives that live in these spaces. Uh, some of them are used just for functional purposes like warehouses or go downs. A lot of them are being converted into heritage hotels because there is, of course, that added interest. We go back to that conversation and consumerism, really, where it's the, the people non-local Shekhavatis that are interested in coming and seeing these Havelis. Um, I think something maybe I forgot to mention is that these Havelis are also very lay tourist interest simply because uh, not only are they big and grand, they have these elaborate frescoes, beautiful frescoes, um, done in a way that's not seen in other parts of the country um, as much. And they have they have lasted. These frescoes have lasted uh, since like 100, 150 years since they were built. So that makes it of immediate aesthetic interest to most people who might even be passing from the area. And so you have these heritage hotels and you a very small uh, set of them are converted into museums. Mm -hmm. And um, there's also an increasing uh, media interest. So these are also sites for film shoots, Bollywood shoots, uh, ad shoots. Um, and so on and so forth. So, uh, but I would say one thing I would caveat in this space is that the what was um, unfolding as I was seeing these multiple uses of these buildings is that they're not 
single dimensional. And what I mean by that is that the same set of people might be looking at these buildings in multivocal ways or multidimensional ways. The same person whose family owns a Haveli and uses it as a vacation home also sees it as a site for a shoot. Right. And, um, you know, bring people in to, you know, kind of use that as an opportunity and build on their businesses. And at the same time, use it as a destination wedding space. And at other times, maybe rent it out, you know. So, um, and at the same time, this landscape was very vibrant with that these are backdrops of festivals. Sometimes spaces are used within the Havelis for that. When the Marwadis come back to uh, these Havelis at different points in time, and some of them can and some of them can't, uh, they become that space of rituality. And a lot of these ancestral and social relationships are rekindled almost. And the site of that is this Haveli, which may have been you know empty for 10 months, but then for those two months suddenly become like, this was a space that was lived in. And there are material and very evident aesthetic manifestations of that as well. Um, so yeah, I think that was something that uh, that for me penetrated uh, deeper than this idea of just tourism and heritage as just being listed and being the, the domain of expertise. Um, and also spoke against very dominant academic narratives that I was seeing towards abandonment or ruination, or that these used to be residential spaces, but now they're nothing and there's no value that's attached to them. I love it. I love how you're um, uh, you're quite kind of questioning those narratives and and the stereotypes around that, and and you're um, you're kind of honoring the 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 life of these Havelis um, by um, taking away on one hand the, the kind of the wealth and abundance stereotype, but also this idea. Like I feel there's almost a gender dynamic there. I don't know if we can get into that, but the way that. Um, that the the binary gender is framed in the in in certain discourses. It feels like the Haveli fits into that. Like it has a life and then it's too old, or it has a life while it's um, fertile and things are happening, but then you know nobody cares about it anymore. And um, so it feels actually quite revolutionary what you're doing, empowering perhaps more a better word. No, no, thank you for that. Um, I I don't know if it's revolutionary or impactful, but it was definitely something I was living every day. Um, and um, I would I would say a lot of this insight, if I'm if if it's correct, if my instincts are correct about this, came from the fact that I had the opportunity to live in Haveli. Yeah, so tell us about that. That's a beautiful seg into my next question, which is about your field work. And you've um tantalized us a little bit already by saying you literally just got back and so you're settling back into Stanford life um but you also mentioned um and I I I think I wasn't fully aware of that you were trained as a historian and so field work meant sitting in an archive and uh there are of course a lot of narratives that that critique that vision of the archive as a place to sit, right? I mean, field working in an archive is actually also doing field work. It's just field work of a different nature. And I think we can talk a lot more about that, uh, but not today. Uh, but you were out in the field, not having fully been trained that way. And yeah, tell us about everything. How was that for you? Um, it was amazing. Uh, it was primarily the term I keep using is overstimulating. 
because <laughs> I don't mean that in a negative or a positive way. It's just a lot of things that are coming at you and also that you're pursuing. Like yeah. that's also kind of the core of fieldwork that you are trying to make sense of um, a project that you have thought in your mind that you think is worth doing. And now you're just out in the open and you're going and pursuing that. And then suddenly you're like, oh, I'm here. And what am I supposed to do? So while I would say that there were there was some training and that's what graduate programs in the US uh, enable us to do, but nothing can prepare you for um, a monster of your own making <laughs> because everyone's experience is so subjective everybody's projects are different the way uh, some research methods may work for some does do not work for others right and again as somebody on the in the archaeology track um, at, at uh, Stanford Anthropology, for me, my research would look or what field of work comprised for me would be very different from, let's say, my colleagues. So that being said, I mean, I just, I uh, landed because that's what I guess the best instinct um, said that, you know, you land and you try and observe. If you can't make sense of something, the best way to do it is just to be there and observe and then wherever your instinct leads you you have to learn how to guide your gut instinct you have to learn what is it like if there's something novel and something that you feel might lead to something just follow it um, and a lot of it does involve constantly being on socially constantly being on emotionally um, and being you don't have time to be an introvert you don't have time to be someone who requires um you know just time by yourself sitting at an archive that i'd been doing for two years which was stimulating of a different kind where the only people you can speak to are dead and gone and are like in papers now these are actual strangers you have to speak to an everyday basis and you hope to god that they like you because why else would they want to talk to you yeah. So anyway, so I landed up in Navalgarh, which I had selected to be my primary field site. Um, I had been able to make some um, preliminary fieldwork connections there before I joined Stanford and pre-COVID. So that made me comfortable. It also is has some of the most beautiful Havelis in Shikhavati. Um, and I didn't have a space to stay uh, initially. And I, I mean, I knew that, but I thought that, hey, you know, as a person in, you know, grown up in the city, there's, of course, a broker system. And then you go and yeah, maybe it'll just be a couple of days and I'll just move into a well-furnished apartment and start with my fieldwork life. And it really wasn't that because, first of all, there's no brokering market in Navalgarh because people don't in their homes or they migrate out of that space yeah. so the space for people to come in and stay long term as renting an apartment you know that that's what the target audience would be was you know negligible and there was also a very strong suspicion of outsiders mm -hmm. uh, who wanted to do that because of the larger issues of encroachment uh, where, you know, uh, ten tenants would move into Havelis and then they would not leave for years altogether. And Indian tenancy laws do give part ownership rights to tenants to uh, prevent eviction. Yeah. So there was a lot of resistance and I'm a single woman, um, you know, just suspicious because yeah. what are you here to do you're here to yeah. study why yes. so anyway long story short um thanks to the goodwill of one of my collaborators um he was able to help me get into rent one of the rooms uh called Bethux, which used to be an office space in one of the havelis and um i got there and there is uh, <laughs> there is there is a lot of um 
again, so one one part of it was getting a space to stay in. And then once you move into the space, then that's the second shock, where it is a beautiful historic home. The owners lived out of Navalgarh. They would visit once or twice a year. And therefore, it was well kept. There was electricity. There was running water, except not in the quarters that I had rented. <laughs> so just the project of getting together a home that was in my field site and also was one of the buildings that I was supposed to study, just presented a different set of dynamics for me altogether, where on one hand, I had to make choices of, oh, do I paint the walls? Because they were very grimy, they were just dirty. I mean, it wasn't even dirty, like, it just was very inhabitable to stay in because the previous tenants had also ended up doing damage to the room. So as any person who would be moving into a new space, the kind of cleaning up that you do uh, to make the space habitable um, was was one option. But then I was like, oh, am I painting over previous services? Um, there wasn't plumbing in my kitchen because it was supposed to be a storage space. So there was no need for plumbing to be like, I am studying heritage buildings. I can't just go about and start digging and drilling into them. <laughs> I love heritage buildings, but I don't want to live in them. You know, bring, bring on that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right uh, getting furniture made getting other other stuff made so make that idea of making a home in the field that anybody who goes and ends up doing long-term field work will end up doing anyway but for me it was a very in interesting opportunity and I use the word interesting because in some ways the physical discomfort was um counterbalanced by the intellectual stimulation I was getting at the same time that as uncomfortable as the fieldwork got uh, or making the space into a home became it was it also presented me with so many opportunities to think through um, as someone who's staying in a historical building what are the limitations and possibilities that are afforded to them so um, and I think that became such a fantastic foundation for me to start thinking about this idea of afterlives, that mm -hmm. I am also living a life in this building and this building has a life by extension. And what happens, let's say, when the tenant, when the owners come in and what are the changes that they do when they want to make this into habitable? Uh, a couple of months before I moved in, there was a full fledged shoot, film shoot that had happened and they had done changes to, to the building as well. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was creating that home space in the field was um, a marvelous opportunity, but also was deeply physically uncomfortable at one point in time. I I want um, I'm to, I'm going to ask you about um, the, the, the homeless field, but I, I think I'm really reflecting on what that must have been like for you having grown up in India. I mean, India is your home and you've grown up with a certain amount of comfort and expectation of what life looks like. Um, and I know that you started an Instagram account, which is, you know, the ultimate sign of you know, <laughs> wanting to engage with the topic. Uh, uh, is it called Home as Field? I uh, Yes, I think I started off the series uh, calling it, I think, Explorations or Thoughts of a First-Time Anthropologist. Doing we'll, first we'll, put it in the, we'll put it in the show notes. But how do people locate you? Where do people locate you? And how do they identify you? And how did that then play into your field work? So that was a thousand questions. Uh, no, I mean, uh, these were things that were extremely important when 
I was so um, concerned with being accepted and liked, especially mm. when I first landed up, right? Because one of the things that I guess any person who embarks on field work and it, it's primarily based on speaking with people and hoping that they want to speak with you is that you you want to be liked yeah. and you want to be at least be presented as a um, as a non intrusive presence. And as someone who can hopefully meld in the surroundings a bit. So as far as like me being Indian and me being from a Hindi speaking family was concerned, I was hoping that it will be easier um, because I wouldn't stick out so much. Um, and, and considering like sticking out here is is was desirable not sticking out was was desirable at that point yeah. but that being said irrespective of what I think about myself when I landed up there are ways in which people immediately know that yeah. you're not a part of them yeah and that's completely fine but it was just interesting to see how that played out of course my Hindi being one of them uh, people generally speak Marwari there uh, and it's a, depending upon which part of uh, Shikhavati you're in, because it's three districts. So if you're uh, if uh, you're in a district that's closer to the Haryana border as Junjunu was, the Marwadi will be mixed with a bit of a Haryanvi dialect. Uh, and if you're further south, it will be more close to the Gujarati Marwadi dialect. So, um, but yeah, the fact that you choose your language of daily communication is not Marwadi but Hindi is a first sign. Yeah. Um, the second is also like features. Uh, I mean, India is a big, big country. Um, and as you know, like people come in all shapes and sizes and have different kinds of physical features. Mm, the way you look, therefore, and that's not, that's part grooming and part features that do you look Rajasthani yeah. uh, is, is a part of it. So anyway, in these ways, it was, um, it was very quick uh, for them to see that I was not Rajasthani. Mm -hmm. And as far as the implications it had on my research was, um, for me, I did feel I had the cultural tools to be able to navigate through this new space. So me being an Indian woman, um, of course, caste is, is, is a big factor here. Um, and the reason, I mean, I don't look at caste particularly, that's not the mainstay of my study, but anybody working on South Asia or India in any capacity knows that caste is always going to be one of the factors that are omnipresent and are pervasive in, in whatever we study. But the fact that I was studying a very specific caste group, which was the Marwadis, uh, they are one of the groups in the Banya community or the merchant or the businessman community also made it uh, important for them to locate me within that caste group. And they could do that because I'm Indian and I'm North Indian. Yeah. So uh, these categories of sense making for the people I was engaging with was very important. And on my part, being Indian gave me the cultural tools to recognize and then also understand how much I wanted to enable that or disable that on certain categories. So me being from an urban space, me being from Delhi, me studying abroad, uh, all that information, like once they did understand, was of course automatically made me an other and an outsider. A privileged one at that because they it also afforded me certain protection, certain distancing that was desirable um, in different circumstances. But at the same time, me being Indian, me being Hindi speaking, uh, did enable these conversations like, hey, you know, what's your family like? And who are these people? What do they do? What do your parents do? What do your siblings do? How much do you earn? Um, you know, and even like when I would, once I became more friendly and familiar with them, like if I would go back to my family for, let's say, some key festivals, 
they'd be like, you know, bring us this or bring us that because they understood that those were cultural, social norms that I was very much uh, not just uh, aware of, but also took part in, in my own family setup and my own social setup. Yeah, for sure. Um, what was it like for you to be, um, you describe yourself as a, a single woman, in India you are because you're not coming with a family um what was that like living as a single woman in in these you know in a space that you're not renting a room from a family right you're on your own in a space uh, so I'm curious what that was like for you and how that impacted your field work like did you have to you know I always had to make up endless stories and they kind of varied from you know situation to situation because the reality was not something I felt comfortable to share and probably wouldn't have been safe for me so how did you negotiate that I was very privileged to um, be associated with my collaborator in the capacity of a colleague where his um, orientation towards me was very professional he understood the kind of work that I'm doing and he, his reputation in his community gave me the kind of protection that I needed from the larger social setup. So as far as the um, aspect of safety was concerned, sexual safety, uh, physical safety was concerned, because Navalgar is such a small town and everyone knows everyone, that kind of worked in my favor where they knew that, okay, I am working with this person, we know who the, this person is, so there will be hell to pay if we step out of bounds. Um, that being said, being a single woman actually did work for me in certain certain circumstances. And that could just be a peculiarity of Rajasthani men, where, of course, there are exceptions. But specific to my experience, um, Shekhavati men especially are very honor driven. So their impulse is not of me. They may sexualize you behind your back. But when at least they were interacting with me, the impulse for them was always to be like, okay, you're like a sister to us. Yeah. You're under our protection now. If you need anything, you tell them. They would even refer to me as behen or, you know, or sister. Yeah. And um, of, to some, I was Madam G, which was uh, a tag or a designation that I was trying to dismantle, but also that afforded me a certain kind of protection where sure. a Madam G is untouchable because she's not like our women, whatever yeah. that means. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it takes though, right? I mean, if Madam G is, is what keeps you safe, then so be it. So be it. Um, so as far as renting the room went, it was it was kind of like an interesting dynamic because like I mentioned, there was a lot of skepticism um, in renting out to outsiders because of encroachment issues. Yeah. So the fact that I was a single person also meant that I didn't really have a stake in just taking over the property and right. not leaving. Right. Yeah. Uh, so my singleness that way was an advantage uh, yeah. in putting forward my case that she won't be a danger because first she's a she and second she's a person only yeah. Um, yeah. Where she'll do minimal stuff because how much can a single person do right in a room they can't if they're with a family then they have motivation and inclination and even ability to kind of um, take over the space in in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, lastly, I would say from a research point of view, like so in terms of lived existence and being able uh, to have my living quarters from a research point of view, something um, that was, again, interesting is that I could speak to men uh, that I wouldn't have been able to do if I was a married woman. 
Mm. Because again, that sense of, okay, if you're a married woman, you have to take permission from her husband sure. in order to speak with her. And working in a space where I am speaking to men most of the time, actually, yeah. I ended up speaking with very few women, uh, mainly due to reasons of access, but also because uh, a lot of them were not uh, uh, fluent in Hindi. Their main language was Marbadi, which I could understand, but I wasn't able to speak uh, as fluently as I would have liked. I did end up dealing with men most of the time. Um, right. organically and even professionally so that was also a, 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 an unanticipated side effect of, of being a single woman in this space. I'm mindful of the time but I want to ask you what it's like coming back. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing well. I think I've been back for a little over a month now and uh, once I've set up my home space again I feel better i something i did learn about myself through all of this experience is that i feel okay if i have a place that i can set up as home mm -hmm. and interestingly while that also took intellectual academic dimensions while i was in field work but it's kind of replicated like now that once i'm back so um the home setting in a way is that fertile ground where um, emotional stability and intellectual stimulation kind of take place for me uh, but yeah, thinking about like when I was in the field, especially when times got a little hectic or rigorous or challenging, um, I did crave back for my time back at Stanford, which doesn't necessarily mean my life back in the US. Okay. Um, there's a certain kind of um, safety and a positive bubble that university life gives you. Things are simple. You know, if something's broken, you put a health ticket and then somebody will come and fix it. <laughs> you know exactly where um, modes of transport lie. I can go to my Trader Joe's and I know like what I'll get there. But I think what all of this was indicative to me was how much I was looking forward to structure back in my life again. And not to say that I wouldn't have gotten that in India, but because the year that was I was in India was for field work it had to be unstructured it had to be something that i didn't have control over and i was constantly grappling with making peace with that and therefore when i would think back okay once i'm done with my field work whenever that would be i would be able to come back to my life at university which was structured um so i think that was that gave me solace that gave me peace and um yeah now that i'm back i do i do feel that i'm trying to just um, be true and hold on to this extremely uh, the invigorating and stimulating experience I had and the work that I set out to do, you know, and I found a lot of pleasure in and I continue to find a lot of pleasure in with this starkly different life that I have back in the US. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe to put, put uh, translate or transition from just thinking and speaking to typing it out and putting those words on paper. Do you think there's, I mean, you go to study something, a, a, a space or a text or a house or whatever, but while we're doing field work, in many ways, we end up studying ourselves. Do you think there's there's an element of that? Like, because you, you get from confronted with yourself in many different ways, right, doing field work. 100%. Um, and like, like I mentioned, like home or nesting for me became something I kind of figured out, like that gave me that sense of solace. Because... I mean, maybe I'm just being a little <laughs> uh, uh, too too theoretical about this, but in the end, like fieldwork is a study of life. Mm -hmm. 
like we are students of life when we go out and do field work and i mean all kinds of field work mm-hmm. sure. if our primary occupation is to learn about people and their lives you do study life by extension and you are also a part of that life so one can frame it in the form of objectivity subjectivity distance or closeness or the you know the home as field or making a home in the field but at the end of the day um when you are studying life and you're studying yourself within that you learn things that uh, are a part of not just your ability and skill and capability but things that truly matter to you to be able to do that work yes. spaces that make you flourish emotionally personally and ex- intellectually and professionally as well and that's the beauty of our profession we're paid to think and we're paid <laughs> to write what we think right and that does get difficult and it gets a lot but it's never the the act of pursuing it is nevertheless beautiful and amazing by itself beautiful and amazing i love that's a beautiful note to end on uh shivangni thank you so much for spending time with me and telling us all about your uh, phd project and your field work and uh have a fantastic winter break coming up thank you so much lalita it was such a pleasure being in this conversation with you thank you as always thanks to soham shiva for creating the intro and the outro and to nila farsaraj for post production Thank you for listening to the SASPod, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Makam faiz koi raah mein jachahi nahi Makam faiz koi raah mein